Breaking the cycle to step forward. Authentic conversations from lived experience and a professional perspective in overcoming abuse with Chris Tuck and Beverly Ann. Hi everyone and welcome to Breaking the Cycle to Step Forward with myself, Chris Tuck and the lovely Beverly Ann. We have a special guest with us today, Sarah Champion MP, and we're going to be asking Sarah all about her life, how she became an MP, and more importantly, all of her work around child sexual abuse and exploitation and the Victims Bill. So before we come to Sarah, I just want Bev to um, just introduce herself to Sarah, because Sarah knows me, but she doesn't know Beverly. Well, hello, Sarah, and hello to anybody listening or watching us on this podcast. So um, I've been looking at some of your background as well. We do have some similarities, so be interested to see what goes forward. Okay, so, um, come and join uh, me on the green benches. There's always space. <laughs> so I'm actually known as a trauma recovery specialist. So I work with adults overcoming childhood trauma or stress, but particularly with the mind-body um, connection. So we're looking at chronic fatigue, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, etc. So I specialise in the emotional side, looking underneath at some of the causes of, of stress with the body. So I'm not a counsellor, so it's psychosomatic is my area. I am studying at the Open University for uh, psychology and I'm doing social sciences at the moment and I absolutely love it. My background, um, my lived experience is growing up, I was the eldest of six children that my mum kept because she had another two adopted out and I went into um, care from the age of four. So I went to a couple of children's homes and fostered and at 16 I lived in a hostel that's when I knew back then that one day I'd use my voice to raise awareness but also we had all these adults around us who were making decisions in our best interest but didn't actually ask us at any time and sadly I am feel blessed that we were in care absolutely but we were often being sent home to a toxic family and also to my abusers which included my father so that's everything in a nutshell. So, so the crossover there, Beverly, is that you obviously are doing a degree in psychology. Yes. And, and Sarah did, did exactly the same. Exactly. Yes, at Sheffield University. Right. Well, that's why I came up here. Um, so I came up here when I was 19 um, and have basically stayed around ever since. Um, I mean, my first job, sort of proper paid job, was actually for Rotherham Borough Council. So it's sort of come, and my last proper paid job was for uh, running a children's hospice in Rotherham. So I've sort of come full circle. Yeah. So Sarah, how did you go from arts development officer to a CEO of a children's hospice? How did that happen? <laughs> Um, I, I mean, well, to sort of to, to take a step back from that, um, I graduated in the early 90s, which feel very similar to where we are now. 
Um, mm-hmm. The only difference was then there was very high unemployment, whereas now there isn't. But um, very hard to uh, make ends meet. Uh, it was my f- sort of first political experience was the poll tax, if people remember that. So yeah. um, rather than taxing the house, I think they were going to tax individuals or the other way around. Um, and it was the first time I'd been involved in um, people really being adversely affected by their government policy decisions and rising up to challenge that, which we successfully did. Um, And I got into the arts because it was my passion. It was what I loved. So I started, uh, because I was unemployed after my degree, I started off actually working uh, as a volunteer in an adult's hospice in the funding department. Uh, Then I went from that to get some money in to running um, art workshops. And uh, Rotherham Borough Council actually asked me to come in and do library uh, workshops with children and uh, in Rotherham. Uh, And so I did that. Um, Then they asked me if I could babysit literally the art centre because at the time, and we didn't know it at the time, the art centre manager was actually pregnant and it was a very complicated pregnancy. So she ended um, sort of uh, leaving work early and staying off longer. So that sort of got me formally into running arts organisations. And then um, I went to do the arts development, uh, which was really, very much about um, empowering the local community, giving them a voice, uh, doing that through arts. Um, So one really amazing thing was there was a, it was, I was brought into the area, um, which is Ashfield, which is sort of um, like top of uh, Nottingham, bottom of South Yorkshire, if you can imagine that band. Mm -hmm. And uh, literally the year I started was when the last coal mine there stopped. So there was a lot of um, unemployment, there was a lot of um, identity being lost, uh, community cohesion breaking down, all of the sort of the social structures that came with a big employer that sort of pretty much everyone went to just disappearing overnight. And I was brought in because the BNP was targeting that area. Um, and uh, in, in their wisdom, they thought that arts was the best way to counter fascism. Um, and so what I did was just talk to the local people, find out what it was that they wanted. And one really good example was an old um, coal mine uh, railway line that they sort of used, uh, like a, a two, narrow two gauge that they used to get the coal out. And we decided to make that rather than just sort of shutting it down and letting it grow over, we decided to make it into a sculpture trail. And everyone was like, Sarah is going to get vandalised, it's going to be destroyed. And uh, because it was people's grandparents, it Mm -hmm. was their aunts, it was their brothers that we actually got to make the sculptures. Um, Why would you do that when it was your next door neighbour that made it? And I realised we'd cracked it when I walked along it after we'd opened it the first weekend after and uh, I saw a sculpture that we hadn't made with artists and someone had made that in their garden and put it there and I thought wow okay we've got this and then from there (laughs) uh, I moved over to Manchester um, because I'm actually part Chinese so my great grandmother was Chinese from Shanghai um, and I went to run the Chinese Art Centre because uh, my grandpa who was uh, half Chinese he died when I was 18 months but was a very very influential figure still is to to a large extent Um, and so that helped me combine the arts and a part of my background that I didn't really know but wanted to engage with Um, and so I work with artists of Chinese descent uh, mainly sort of British Hong Kong um, uh, artists but from all over the world and again my 
role was to give them a voice, was to give them a platform um, to uh, let them be able to sort of express what was important to them. But it was a very, I don't mean this in a negative way. It was, I, I can't think of a, of a more positive word than say it was a very rarefied thing. So um, I was working with a very small group of artists in a very specific um, uh, context that was seen by probably a few thousand people. And I just thought I'm giving so much to this. Um, I want to give those skills and, and to be honest, the hours of my time to something yeah. I feel has a very direct, very real um, basis. So then I saw the children's hospice, um, Blue Bubble Children's Hospice, job being the chief exec of that coming out and I thought well I'll never get it um but I applied anyway because I thought that's a that's something that I can actually do on a daily basis I can see the difference that I'm making um and I always thought I went through as the wild card but the um chair of the board said actually I was the one to beat the whole way through and they gave me the job um and I ran it for four and a half years um and it was amazing and phenomenal um and and such a a gift to me to be able to work there because the families had um I won't say they'd accepted but they'd recognized and acknowledged the diagnosis of their child and so the most important thing for them was to spend the best quality time that they possibly could with that child yeah. And we were able to make that happen. But the the group that I was most impacted by were the siblings, mm -hmm. because the poorly child had the the help, the medical help, yeah. uh, the psychological help, mm -hmm. the family's attention. You know, the family knew that they were going to be alive for you know hours, days, weeks, years. So so they really wanted to invest in that child. The sibling um is not intentionally but but is literally standing in the back of the room um and they're I mean how complex is it when you're young you're going to lose your sibling yeah you're jealous of them because they're getting all the attention and you're not and you're trying to be a really good girl or boy and do everything you're told and be quiet but actually you quite fancy running around and screaming and shouting and having a guinea pig or whatever yeah so, so I spent most of my time you had a computer room sitting there um, just chatting to the siblings um, and helping them as much as we could move forward um, mm. once their, their brother or sister had died. And the one thing that I'm really, really proud of, I don't know the stats there because I've not been there for a few years, but um, my sort of close friend has just taken over as chief, as chief exec um, so I could update it. But men and women deal with the death of a child very, very differently. Mm. Um, and uh, the stat at the time was that 50% of relationships would break down when a child died. And I understand mm. that. Um, and for the 150 odd children that passed while I was there, um, all of the families stayed together because we were able to give them that support. So counseling yeah. support, but also um, practical support as well. Uh, and, and I feel really, really proud to have done that. So I went from, from one extreme to the other and then <laughs> became an MP. <laughs> What made you become an MP, though, Sarah? We are really, really intrigued. Um, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm a very out feminist. Um, I strongly believe in equality and we don't have it um, in this country. We don't have it around the world. So um, I, I, I talk to sort of 
two women here, um, but I think anybody listening to this will understand as well. Uh, the reason I stood to be an MP was because another MP who was a woman suggested that I could do it. Um, and I think that uh, women and girls are particularly poor, uh, sort of putting their hand up and going, yeah, I'll have a go. Um, and and it usually takes um, another woman or a girl to say, come on, you're good enough. Yes. Um, so uh, for me, she said that. And I thought I genuinely thought she was mad. I mean, I genuinely <laughs> because when you put on the television, you know, and I come from a working class family. I know my accent yeah. reflect that. I went to a comprehensive school. Uh, I, I went to university. I was the first in my family. But that's when we had, you know, free education and they got a full grant. Um, and I've worked. Wow, lucky years. you. <laughs> amazing. amazing. I mean, people don't even believe that that was a thing once. Yeah. Um, so and I've worked for everything that I've got. But when I switched on the television and still now when I switch on the television, um, I don't recognize many of those people that look yeah. back at me. So I just didn't I didn't even consider it. Um, and you know what? I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> well, election locally. Um, and uh, literally my predecessor um, went to jail for um, embezzling public funds for six months. So pretty serious. Um, wow. And at the time, again, I thought that I was just, um, you know, a wild card that was sort of there to make up the numbers. But now uh, I understand someone who had no political history, uh, who wasn't on Twitter, who wasn't on Facebook, uh, who who was running the local children's hospice, was a really good, clean candidate. So I yeah. can't see why the party, uh, the Labour Party, uh, sort of put me forward. Um, and, and I think it's quite interesting because I don't have any political background at all I actually had to learn the ropes um, and I think that's been a real strength in getting change because if you just do the same thing you tend to get the same outcome whereas um, I've done things differently and I've got different outcomes which I'm quite proud of. And oh, well. you know you said you're not a career politician because of your work in the community you understand the community you understand the struggles and then you found different ways of working when you got into parliament um perhaps different from the people that we do see that face us that are in parliament and I think maybe that is your success right there in a nutshell is the fact well, that you've done all of that I also think Chris um and 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 I've got some phenomenal you know I'm talking about stereotypes I'm not yes, talking about people yeah. that that sit anywhere in the house um but but our assumptions about people um and I would say a lot of it is because uh I've always had a job um so you know my job hasn't been politics um yeah. and I uh I have always gone in to serve uh, and I'm really proud to yeah. serve so um I know who my boss is uh it's the people of Rotherham uh and I know that I'm there to do a job rather than to make a name for myself or I don't know what other people go in for yeah absolutely so let's move on a little bit now to the actual work that you have done around child sexual abuse and exploitation are you able to give us sort of like a timeline of what you've done? Obviously, we've looked at Wikipedia and all the rest of it, so we, so we know <laughs> what, got to be what's true. out there. But is it true, Sarah? So... Um, I, I stopped looking at that many, many years ago <laughs> because otherwise you go, what? Why? And there's a typo and it's just, just, uh, just whatever. Yeah. Um, 
and there's also um, a distinction between Sarah Champion, the MP, and mm -hmm. Sarah Champion, the person. Um, yes. And I try and maintain that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I find when you go on things like Wiki, it starts to get a bit muddled in your own yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. So we know we've we've read about you, but we're challenging yeah, yeah. it. We're challenging <laughs> it. But what um, I do know, you've been involved in a lot of APPGs around CSA and CSE. So. Could you expand on that for us, all of that yeah, kind of, of work that you've done? Of course, of course. Um, and, and so I, when I, in my by-elections, this was November 2012, mm -hmm. there was one of the um, very contentious issues that was used was that a, um, I think it was two Roma children didn't get placed with a um, uh, a family because the family was UKIP supporters. That that's what was said at the time, um, and so then I was starting to hear, uh, funnily enough, from the um, former BMP. Um, I think she was a councillor, but she was definitely in the area that um, children were being uh, groomed and exploited. Um, to be honest, because it was all very politicized yeah um, I I was I didn't know quite what was going on um I won't say I took it with a pinch of salt but I will say I thought you know this this all seems quite odd and I'm not really sure about this yeah uh, and I've worked in the area for a very long time and surely I would have come across this before um I went so my first day was the uh, the very end of November, very beginning of December, and I think it was January the following year. Um, there was a Home Affairs Select Committee, so this is one of the cross-party committees that scrutinises government um, decision making. That was in uh, based on Rotherham Rotherham Children's Services, and I thought, oh, I'll go in uh, and see what this is about because it's my constituency. Mm -hmm. Met um, with uh, the the sort of the chief exec at the time of the um, council, and I've met some of the councillors, um, and uh, they were there, and so I sort of chatted to them before. Went into the session, and there was a woman there uh, called Jane Senior, um, and Jane had been uh, employed by the council to run something called Risky Business. Um, I can't remember the time that it started, late 90s, I think, into sort of mid um, 2014, 20, I can't remember what the date. A long time anyway. anyway. So she'd been there yes. a long time. Um, and uh, she was talking about numbers of uh, mainly girls, but not exclusively girls, who were being manipulated um, and then sexually exploited, trafficked around the country and her frustrations about trying to get them the support that they needed from the council, from the police, mm -hmm. from voluntary services. Um, and I was just looking at this and I was like, yeah, it's quite what? unbelievable when you hear things like that, isn't what it? What is going on? Yeah. What is going on here? Um, and uh, and I left that meeting. She says, um, so when she finished giving evidence, because uh, I couldn't sit near her, um, but I caught her eye and I just went, sorry, mouthed it to her. And after that, she got in touch with me um, and said it was because I recognised what was going on and said sorry that she dared speak to me. Um, and she started telling me a lot more. Um, and at that point, she wasn't working for the council then. Um, at that point, um, I got in touch with the uh, charity Bernardo's 
um, because for sort of 25 years they'd been working on what I then knew to call CSE. Um, and we worked together to do an inquiry to see whether the justice system was fit for purpose when it came mm -hmm. to uh, prosecuting. So not so much the sort of the police end um, uh, and not prevention, but but sort of prosecuting uh, cases of CSE. Um, and by, I would say, the summer of 2014, uh, if we were doing this now, I would be telling you that I was an absolute expert on child sexual exploitation. I knew it inside out and backwards. We've published a report. We've got some changes. So I've managed to um, change. Uh, the so the term grooming is a technical term, and that's meeting a child for sex. Um, and uh, I managed to change uh, that because in the law you had to groom a child twice twice yeah um so I managed to change it down to once because it's sort of like what so we give them a, for, a pass on the first time that they break yeah. a child <laughs> yeah extraordinary um so I I, I knew, knew all about this and then August uh 2014 a report that had been commissioned by Rotherham Council by then um Alexis J now yeah. Dame Alexis yeah. J uh came out that knocked me for six saying that they had identified not that they thought they had identified 1400 young girls uh and uh, boys who had been um groomed and sexually assaulted in in my town um yeah. and then from that point I mean there is no way on this earth I'm going to be one of those people that turned a blind eye so yeah. so that yeah. was it I've been working in that ever since can I just interject in here because we've used a few acronyms. Sorry. So that's, no, 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 that's okay. It's just for our listeners. Um, just want to go back. So CSE is child sexual exploitation. And if we mention CSA, that's child sexual abuse. There was another acronym that you used, Chris, that I tried to get hold of quickly, but it was flowing so well. And um, that was the AGGP, was it? APPG, All-Parliamentary -A -A -Parliamentary Party Group, or All-Party Parliamentary Group. Which one is it, Sarah? That one, All-Party <laughs> all Parliamentary Group. So it's cross-party. The cross-party group of MPs yeah. that work together on a common aim. Lovely, and thank you for that. So anyone listening, I raise the hand and I ask a silly question. <laughs> you, there's no silly questions. Sarah, before we go on to your current work and the Victims Bill and all of that, because we know we've only got you for a short time, um, what is the process of becoming an MP? What is the front bench? What is the back bench? And <laughs> how do you get into the cabinet? What, what Tell us what that's all about. Um. So, uh, so I'm, I, I say this with pride, I'm a freak. Um, I came in in a by-election and a by-election is usually when uh, an MP either stands down, is removed, uh, dies. Um, and then, uh, so it's not a general election when all MPs have to step down and be re-elected or not. Uh, so a by-election uh, tends to be quite quick it tends to be quite um, issue-based. So at the time of recording this, Boris Johnson has stepped down in Uxbridge. So um, there will be a lot of um, investment, not, not cash, well, not necessarily cash, but time invested by the parties to try and win it. So politically, you know, everybody wants uh, Boris Johnson's seat. So um, by-elections tend to throw up um, not your usual 
politicians who have sort of come up through the ranks. So maybe they studied politics, they work for an MP, uh, th then they they uh, become a local councillor, and then they uh, stand to become uh, sort of a, a, a member of parliament. So you tend to get more oddballs like me uh, coming through. So um, when you start, uh, a backbencher is literally that. So we have um, two banks of seating. You will have seen them during PMQs. Uh, the front bench, so the ones right at the front, is where our sort of um, the people that have been appointed by their party as the party's spokesperson and policymaker. So they sit on the front and the rest of us sit behind on the back benches. So literally the back benches. Um, an interesting fact, it's it, the chamber's really tiny. So when I, I'd never been to Parliament before my first day of work and they you have to go in and go through like a ceremony of enrollment and uh, and they sort of took me into this like mini um chamber and I said oh that's really thoughtful that they've got like a mock-up so that you're not sort of threatened mm -hmm. uh, and I, so I said to to the um the guards that were there you yeah, know this is great so so the real one is it much bigger and they're like Sarah this is the real one it just looks big on telly and I'm like oh okay really embarrassed <laughs> But the reason the distance between um, you'll have seen like Keir Starmer and, and Rishi Sunak shouting at each other on the dispatch boxes. So these are literally wooden boxes that would have had the papers in that would have been dispatched all over the place. The distance between the two of them is a couple of inches longer than two swords pointing at each other. Mm -hmm. So it's literally to stop us stabbing each other that's the distance so um it, it's a, a weird place so the cabinet will be um your sort of top tier so it's the people that you're um, most reliant on in the key roles so under um jeremy corbyn uh i was the um shadow secretary of state so the shadow is we're literally shadowing those in government um so i was a shadow secretary of state for women equalities and i was in his shadow cabinet at that time so once a week we would all sit around the table and kind of decide the direction of travel for the party within parliament so can i go back a little bit then so at that time these by-elections came up and you had somebody who said about going into government you were working at that time so what happened there were you able to work alongside I mean that must have been a change um so so by-elections tend to be very quick and mine was exceptionally quick so um I had three weeks notice uh of of when it was going to be so um i put my application in i think on the i can't remember the monday or the tuesday um the interviews were uh the monday the following week um then uh you have the um uh sort of the so, so that that gets you down to like a shortlist of people and there were there was myself and another woman that were shortlisted so then it's up to the local um labor party members to make their decision between the candidates that they're offered by national um which one they want so you do a hustings which is where you go and basically it's like a sales pitch um and then at the end of that they vote and then you become the the candidate so from that period um it was literally uh, a, a couple of I think it was two and a half weeks um, from being the candidate to actually being the MP. So it, it's a it's a crazy, crazy time. Um, I mean, now uh, we're looking at um, 
the election being probably in October 2024, and we've had some candidates that have already been in place for six months. Um, mine it means that uh, I I can well I, I took two weeks holiday from my job basically, um, and then my job very kindly let me go. Uh, some people have more of a transition period than that once they get elected, um, but for those people that are candidates now, uh, unless they have a very understanding boss and they live in the constituency, they're having to travel, they're having to negotiate time off work to come up to their constituency and, and basically let their constituents know who they are and what they stand for. So, I mean, it, it's a tough process. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you tend to get the same sort of candidates because they need financial support behind them yeah. to be able to do that. Um, and unfortunately, I know um, a number of um, women who uh, either single mums or, or in um, uh, with partners who that process, because it's taken them 18 months, uh, financially has been devastating for them. Um, I yeah. mean, it's, it's really tough. And I literally didn't know what I was going into. Um, and I also sort of believed all the myths that uh, MPs are incredibly well paid. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was quite a shock when I realised that I was on uh, less money, uh, much worse pension. Um, and uh, anybody could call me from a pig to a dog. And I just had to take it. So it was quite, quite a challenging um, <laughs> yeah. process. One of our questions we've got for you, but we'll do that at the end, is how do you deal with criticism of your work when you're so passionate about what you do? But we'll park that to the end. Let's talk about the Victims Bill now, as well as Della's Law. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in all of that? And what is it specifically that you are working on? And maybe you need our help with or you know, our listeners help with, because we have got a lot of victim survivors that do listen to our podcast. Um, well, that's a very kind offer. Thank you. And yes, I do need help. Um, basically, it's uh, me and about six other opposition MPs uh, up against the government and their thousands and thousands of civil servants. Um, it also comes around really quick. You can get a copy of the Victims Bill online if you go, uh, well, probably if you just put it into Google Victims Bill, it will ping up, but on the government website if you put it in. And uh, it was meant to be this great piece of legislation. It was initially started by Claire Waxman, who is the, now the London Victims Commissioner, um, and was then taken up by uh, the then new MP, uh, Keir Starmer, as a 10 minute rule bill. Um, and the government looked at it, thought, oh, OK, this might be something. So then in 2015, uh, agreed to take it on. But it's taken until now to actually see the document the problem with it is it's a lot more slender than we would want. Um, it puts the victim's code into law, which is great. Um, but as you'll know, the victim's code isn't that um, expansive. So it, it's slender what your rights are. And currently, most people don't even know that there's a victim's code, um, let alone what their rights are within it. So what I'm trying to do is um, broaden that by adding amendments to it and adding new clauses to it. So one of the things that I'm doing is um, I started working with uh, Della and the Safeguarding Alliance. Um, I can't remember, about three years ago now. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to get in is to make sure that all registered sex offenders um, are unable to change their name. Um, because they do that to avoid detection mm -hmm. um, with a new name you can then get a new uh, DBS check effectively so it's terrifying the consequences of that and 
Also in Della's case, um, if you uh, were her abuser, literally on the day of court would change his name and then all of the documents had to be reissued Mm -hmm. in the new name with all of the wait time that that takes. And people listening to this uh, will know you build yourself up for that moment. Uh, So then for them to blow it apart um, is really quite horrific. But what I'm trying to do is broaden that so that anybody, um, even before they've been charged um, as basically a um, uh, pre-bail, pre-charge bail condition, uh, is unable to change their name. Because what I'm seeing is um, a lot of people uh, keeping their birth name clean, using a different name, uh, going through the court process in the new name, and then when they want to, going back to their original name so that their identity is is kept clean from the offences that they've carried out. Um, I've also had um, cases of people uh, getting um, uh, new passports in the new name uh, and literally leaving the country. Um, and there's a number, uh, there's quite, a, I can't remember his name, there's quite a high profile case of a teacher who went and worked in Spain under his new name, yes. his passport, um, and carried on abusing children. So, so this isn't a random thing. And in the information that I've got uh, out of the government, we know that between 2015 and 2020, 16,000 uh, registered sex offenders um, uh, didn't give the correct information. Not all of that will be name change. Some of that will be address. Um, but you have to assume that a lot of that is name change. And also there's a number of sex offenders that have literally just gone missing. And I spoke to my district commander about this when I first became aware. And he was like, Sarah, how are we meant to find them if we don't know who they are? And I was like, yeah, that, that's perfectly reasonable. But that's the whole point, isn't it? To have a register of these people and not allowing them to change their name so we can keep track of them. Exactly right. The fact that we put the onus on them to let the authorities know that they changed their name is crazy. It's a nonsense. And it's Sarah, nonsense. And it every, also means things like yeah. Sarah's law, Claire's law. Exactly. Uh, utterly redundant. Yeah. Absolutely. And speaking to any intelligent person in this world, when you explain this to them, they go, what? Yeah. Why are we not changing that law? Exactly. So Sarah, why are we not changing that law? Why are people not going, yes, pass it through? What, what, why is it sticking? What um, is it, it? It's actually difficult to do. So you have to effectively, um, well, in in you, how do right? Okay, let me start again. In for pre-charge, um, I can see the human rights angle that uh, you know in this country you're innocent till proven guilty. My view is you put other um, pre-charge bail conditions on, so this one will drop. Uh, and we're sorry if a number of people get a, a restriction of changing their name uh, because we think you've abused a child, you know, so I I, I can deal with that one. Um, the other argument is um, the human rights of the perpetrator, but I'm sorry if you've been convicted and a judge says this is a, a condition of your conviction, it, it'll fall when you're off the sex offenders list. So I, you know, so again, I don't have much uh, truck with that. But the reality is it's actually quite difficult. So you could um, 
put a charge on and uh, have an administrative log of everybody that changes their name. But then, for example, if you are fleeing an abuser yourself and want to disappear, you're suddenly in a public record with that new name. So there are there are risks around that. But to try and find a solution, I've actually been working with and deliberately plugging here, um, Experian, and I think it's called LexisNexis. Uh, it's one of the sort of the credit dating things. And they uh, already, for terrorists, for example, are able to work with the Home Office and track people's financial movements to, to find where they are. So they're pretty certain, and I've had lots of meetings with them, that they can implement something to that effect. So, so it's not too difficult. There's just not the political will to do it. This is the thing that I will say is something close to home as well. And my father's dead, so it's I'm not saying anything that I'm not able to, although that also gets my goat, but that's a different thing. Um, and it was only recently my um, dad had his first name, his middle name, and his last name. And after I um, called the NSPCC as an adult to inter intervene on prevention, um, for other members of the family would just say he was he did go on the um, register it didn't actually go to court at that time but I was interviewed etc and it only came to my knowledge literally within a month ago that he was using the surname as a double barreled name so he dropped his first name and he changed and he was being identified as I know, Cooper Thompson and using it as a double barreled yeah. yeah yeah so you know firsthand that people do this and absolutely and, you know by their nature um sex offenders they are looking for weaknesses in the system they are looking well for they're manipulators the sarah exactly. we all know so, that so it's inevitable <laughs> yeah so, so other things that i'm trying to uh, get in so that's one that i'm going for um other things are in terms of um support uh, that gets um, uh, sort of recognised within the bill. They've only got um, IDVAs and ISVAs. Now, mm -hmm. they're great. This is not to diminish from IDVAs and ISVAs at all. Fab fabulous. But they're very much tied to the court process. So what I'm trying to get is that definition expanded to any support service a victim needs. So that could be a stalking advocate. Um, it could be a specialist service based on um, your culture, uh, your religion, for example. Um, so that's another thing that I'm trying to get in. Um, and another one, and, and I would again be interested in your thoughts on this, is the um, children of paedophiles, whether that's yeah. uh, online or, or not. Um, get them defined as victims because if they're defined as victims that then means they get to know or well, their parents do it if they're young the um the court process that's going on uh parole decisions that are coming up and if you think about it if your dad uh usually is uh, a paedophile their details will be in the public domain so you as a child everybody in your school will know it's your dad every parent yeah. will be worried <laughs> sorry um every parent will be worried that uh their child might have been a victim every mother will get blamed because somehow she's meant to know and prevent it and normally yeah. what happens is the family either leave uh they're financially compromised but the psychological trauma on that child i think needs to be recognized so so one of the things and you know chris <laughs> maybe if you can help me with this um yeah 
if people that's what I'm going to be arguing for because I think we have to recognize so we're recognizing children born of rape as victims yeah. under the definition so why not children of paedophiles and and it, there isn't for the state there isn't like a a particular financial onus on them it's just getting them the information and access yeah. to support yeah, and I agree with that, Sarah, because back in 1980, that's exactly what happened to me. I was in the playground. My dad had just been convicted of sexual offences. He was, you know, a paedophile by that definition. And the first thing I knew about my dad being a paedophile was, your dad's a pedo. Yeah, they're laughing, laughing. And I'm like, I just felt the dirt and the shame and the guilt of being labelled my dad. And it was in the mm. local paper. And we didn't have any interventions. We didn't have any support, any care. We just had to carry on with normal life, whatever that looked like. And I carried my dad's guilt for, for years mm. and went into therapy about all of it because yeah. I felt dirty because of what he did and it had nothing to do with me. Mm. So, yeah, I do agree with you about that. Absolutely. Now, Beverly, did you give us the five-minute warning, did you? I did. We, we've got seven minutes and counting. Okay, so. because Sarah's <laughs> a busy lady and she has to Sorry. go. So, Sarah, how can we help you? So, obviously, we can add our voices to what you're trying to do, but is there anything specific that um, any individuals that are listening to this podcast can help you with? Well, I mean, the, the first thing to say is, I don't even know what the date is. Uh, we're recording this on Friday, the 23rd of June. Yeah. Next Tuesday is when the yeah. bill process starts. Um, so, and it will run for four weeks. All of the stuff, uh, well, the majority of the stuff that I think um, listeners will be interested in, the victim stuff is at the front. So mm -hmm. depending when this comes out, uh, yeah. I put down a lot of amendments. Um, and if people were contacting their own MP uh, and saying, could they, could the MP put their name to my amendment? That shows the government there's a lot of people that are interested in it. So that really helps. So um, the other thing is, um, and Chris, I'm really sorry, I didn't, I didn't know about your family history um, in relation to that. But if people, so I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. It's okay. I, I didn't wasn't going to speak about it because this is what happens. This conversation goes off where it goes off. <laughs> OK, um, but uh, but if um, people do have um, examples, because what I find is um, it's easy to challenge data. It's not easy to challenge people's lived experiences. Yeah. So people have um, an experience that, that I could put into my arguments. That would be very helpful. Um, okay. The later stages of the bill um, is around parole. And one of the things I want there is to make sure that victims are informed of all decisions that impact, uh, but not only informed that they have a right to, before a decision is made, have their voice heard. So that's a victim mm -hmm. statement. That's also, uh, you know, explaining why, um, I don't know, security measures around them are important because yeah. recently I've had two survivors of um, CSE who uh, found out literally by accident uh, through Facebook that their perpetrators were in open prisons with um, uh, weekend release conditions. So wow. they had no idea. Um, so and for people listening to that that don't understand this, the trauma impact of Ooh. that is immense. Well, can you it imagine? Is. I mean, I, I remember once I'd been this is years ago, I'd been on a date with someone, it didn't go well. 
um, I walked into, well, I walked out of my physiotherapist, uh, saw him sitting in the um, uh, waiting room and I went and hid in the toilet for 20 minutes. Yeah. And, and that, that, that wasn't, you know, that was a bad date. That wasn't being raped. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 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 It 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 yeah. Well, we've got the thought of that. We've got three minutes and there's one last one last thing that we're trying to get everything in for everybody. Dare to care, Sarah. I so dare to care was and is an absolute passion. Um, it was me trying to prevent child abuse. Um, and we all know how early um, child abuse can start. So for me, it was making sure from primary school age, all children knew about respecting themselves, respecting others, knew that they had the right to say no, knew that if someone said no, they had to back away. Because I, I don't accept that children turn 16, 18, and they're suddenly a predator. There has been a process that's mm -hmm. gone on. So Dare to Care was working with um, survivors. It was working with the voluntary sector to make government uh, bring in mandatory um, relationship mm. education for all primary school. And in uh, June 2017, yay, I got it in the law. Um, the problem is uh, the government still hasn't rolled it out fully. Um, but where it is rolled out, it is having an impact. Um, and uh, I, I just I just hope that that empowers some children and prevents some future abusers coming because we're all obsessed with um, once the crimes happened. But yeah, what if we could prevent the crime and we can Absolutely. prevent the crime? And that's something we've we've talked about, isn't it? Um, about so sex much, education, yeah. about giving the awareness to children because we assume, as you say, it's after it's happened. But there's also this um, thought. Um, I know I've spoken to many different people that, you know, when we talk about child sexual exploitation, even abuse, oh, that doesn't happen here or yeah. it doesn't happen around where we are. That's other countries, other places. Yeah. and, and I mean, they're delusional if they believe that. Absolutely. There's a lot of delusional people, though, Sarah, in this society, unfortunately, yeah. and within many institutions as well. Yeah, but um, yeah, on that and... Uh, so I trained as a shrink and it's always the last five minutes that you get the most interesting stuff. So I'm yeah. going to drop this and, and go, basically. Um, <laughs> knowing the scale of child abuse, so one in four, one in uh, girls, one in eight boys um, will have had some sort of adverse um, experience before the age of 18. Uh, that means that in every institution, there will be a sizable number of people that will have gone mm -hmm. through. So yes. so we all just need to stand up, get rid of the stigma and make the changes we need. Absolutely. And that's a really great way to end this podcast because, sorry, I know I'm the timekeeper, but it is. We <laughs> literally have 30 <laughs> It's been a pleasure to have you on today, Sarah. Thank you very much for your time. And we will obviously work with you going forward and keep up to date with everything. And if we can have you back on at some stage, we'd always welcome you. I so would love that. Lovely. So thank you very much for your time. And we will catch up with you shortly. Okay. Thank you so but much. thank you. Thank Bye you. Bye, everyone, for now. Bye from me. Bye for Bev. And we will see you very soon.